Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Hey everyone, Jason here, and we are in for a real treat this week as we have Dr. Whitney Bow with us. She's a board-certified dermatologist, a distinguished research scientist, and quite simply, one of the best when it comes to all things dermatology. She is truly on the cutting edge and I'm so excited she's finally with us. Whitney, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. I'm so excited to be here and have this great conversation with you today. So we can't be in 2020 without talking about sleep because of COVID and lots of other things going on in the world, sleep is at the forefront. And something you've discussed before is the power of beauty sleep. So can we talk about how sleep affects our skin and what are some tips that for sleep, what are some tips for sleep to, to make sleep truly beauty sleep, if you will? So, so true. I, just yesterday in the office, I would say a handful of patients unsolicited just said to me as I walked in the door, Dr. Bo, my skin is a mess because I'm not sleeping. So I think intuitively we know that when our sleep suffers, our, our skin suffers, right? But let's unpack that science. So when we're, when the quality or the quantity of our sleep is compromised, especially over time, especially if it's more than just one night, that's registered by the body and by the brain as stress. And so that results in higher levels of the primary stress hormone, cortisol. So cortisol can impact the skin and actually inhibit the production of three key molecules and substances in the skin. So when we have too much cortisol, that's gonna dial down our skin's production of collagen, of hyaluronic acid, and of lipids. So when we're not having enough collagen hyaluronic acid, that's going to make the skin less plump, less firm. You're going to start to see loss of elasticity, even you know, in a severe case, atrophy. The skin can actually get thinner. The dermal layer can get thinner. It impairs wound healing. So that has tremendous consequences on the health of the skin. And when our skin doesn't make enough lipid, that compromises what's called the skin barrier. So Jason, I feel like the Mind Body Green audience is very comfortable with the concept of a leaky gut, right? Well, it's funny but, you're mentioning collagen and, and hyaluronic acid, and we have yeah. a grass-fed collagen product which has hyaluronic acid in it. So you're, you're preaching to the choir. Very smart, but we we have leaky skin. You know, when we don't have enough lipids in the skin, we can actually develop a compromised skin barrier, and we can develop what I call leaky skin. So the skin is less able to trap moisture, it becomes dehydrated. And the skin also is less capable of keeping like allergens and irritants and pollutants out, things that when they penetrate through the skin, they trigger inflammation. They make things like acne, eczema, rosacea, psoriasis worse. So, so sleep and lack of sleep, as you can see, it has a profound impact on the health of our skin. Leaky skin. Leaky skin. <laughs> so something you've done considerable research on is the gut-brain skin axis. And we believe in that here at Mind Buddy Green. It's all connected. And you mentioned rosacea, psoriasis, eczema, prima. Can we talk about all of those skin disorders and the roots in the gut? Oh, absolutely. So I view the skin as a window into your overall health. So if you're just treating the skin with creams, with lotions, if you're just treating the skin from the outside in, it's kind of like a Band-Aid. 
right? It's, it's a quick fix. It's a temporary fix. You're not getting to the root of the issue. So there is breathtaking science that has been emerging over the last decade showing that the gut, the brain, and the skin are intimately connected. So um, I'll walk through, and this is very nuanced, and quite honestly, there's new research coming out every day looking at specific skin conditions and how the gut and the skin are connected, but I'm going to sort of oversimplify it now, so bear with me, but but I'm going to walk through the gut-brain-skin axis because I think it's just important to sort of grasp how those things are connected. So, you know, psychological stress, either alone or in combination with refined, processed, comfort foods devoid of fiber, basically our typical Western diet, right, slows down digestion. It leads to stagnation in the gut. And when that happens, it creates a shift in the type of bacteria in the gut, something called dysbiosis, right? And when we have this shift, this disruption of the equilibrium of the microbiome in the gut, that leads to increased intestinal permeability, leaky gut, and that leads to a whole cascade of pro-inflammatory cytokines that has a system-wide effect, but also affects the skin. So if you are genetically prone to acne and you eat the wrong foods, that's going to exacerbate your acne. If you're genetically prone to eczema, it's going to exacerbate your eczema. And we're now seeing there's new studies coming out showing that even people with irritable bowel syndrome are more likely to have eczema. People with eczema are more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome. People with rosacea are more likely to have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So we're seeing these gut-skin connections, and I've just been asked to chair a meeting just focusing on the gut-skin connection and even just educating dermatologists. I feel like this is these are concepts that we didn't learn in medical school and residency because they're so new, that science is so new. So I've been tasked to even help to organize some of the pioneers in our field to even help educate each other. It's a very exciting field. So you talk about the microbiome in the context of, of the gut microbiome, but let's talk about the skin microbiome. So how big is the skin microbiome? and? In, in terms of it, an evolution forward and how we think about skin health. And I'm also curious, because it's pretty big, why it's been so overlooked. So Yeah, such a great question. It's like, why all of a sudden are we talking about the skin microbiome? Yeah, yeah. Like, like how big is it? Where, and... where is it? Where, where is it? What's it going on there? So, yes. So um, the skin microbiome has always been there. Um, and in fact, it's actually diminishing. Like we, we used to have a much more robust and diverse skin microbiome and things that we're doing every day, washing, cleansing, overexfoliating. We're, we're actually hurting hand our, our skin microbiome, yeah. hand sanitizer. Thank you very much. Antimicrobial ingredients, antibiotics, et cetera. But the skin microbiome really came into the forefront when we developed these advanced sequencing techniques. So when I was back in training, we did something called culturing the skin. So we would take a swab, we would swipe it across the skin, the forehead, then we would swipe it on a Petri dish and stick it in the incubator, stick it in the oven. And then we would take out that Petri dish. And I kid you not, we would write articles. I personally wrote articles describing the morphology of what would grow. There are white fluffy colonies consistent with this genus and species. Okay. So not that was so not sophisticated compared to what we have now. Now we have these high throughput DNA sequencing techniques that we are able to get a beautiful, complicated picture of 
all of not only the genus and species, but the strains, all these different bacteria and microorganisms and yeast and fungi and mites that are living on the skin. And we're realizing that they're living not only on the surface, they're, they're all the way down. They're all the way down to what we call the subcutaneous fat. The microbes literally swarming throughout the layers of the skin. And our skin microbiome is totally different from our gut microbiome. Our skin is like a desert compared to our gut microbiome, right? So the gut is moist and it's nutrient rich and the pH is pretty neutral. And on the skin, it's dry, it's aerobic, there's lots of oxygen. The pH is acidic. Actually, our skin thrives at a slightly acidic pH, around a four to a six, ideally 5.5. It's nutrient poor. So our skin microbiome is very different from our, and even our skin forehead and chest and back is different from the armpits, is different from the microbiome on our hands and on our forearms. Wow. So if it's, if the gut and skin are so different, I'm curious, do they influence each other? Such a great question. So they, they do, but they do it indirectly for the most part. They do it through the immune system. So, so the gut has about 70% of our immune system resides in our gut. It's called the gut-associated lymphoid tissue or GALT, G-A-L-T. Now, the skin has the salt, <laughs> the skin-associated lymphoid tissue. So the educators of our immune cells, the teachers, the ones that play the biggest role in teaching our immune system when to turn on and when to turn off, when it's worth fighting a war and it's when it's worth calling off the troops is our microbiome. So the, having a healthy microbiome, having a healthy skin microbiome is so important for training and teaching our immune cells. And I think, Jason, we hear all the time, like immune boosting, strengthening our immune system. What's so interesting is that so many of the derm conditions and so many of the GI, so many of the gut conditions that we see are not because the immune system isn't strong enough. With COVID, yeah, that's definitely the case. But in, in some instances, even sometimes with COVID, it's because the immune system is so ramped up and so revved up that it's unnecessarily creating inflammation. Like in acne, in rosacea, in vitiligo, in psoriasis, the this immune system is fighting a war that it doesn't need to fight. It's it's confused. Our immune system is confused. And what we know is we know that the microbiome, especially early in life, having a healthy microbiome early in life, both in your gut and on your skin, is critical to educating and teaching your immune system so that you have a regulated, healthy immune system that knows, okay, this is foreign. This is a pathogen. This is a threat. Now is the time to rev up and recruit the forces, right? Or, you know what? This isn't a foreign invader. This isn't a, a threat. This is a nothing burger. This is something that who cares if we have these little demodex mites or we have these little C. acnes bacteria, like no big deal, let it go. Or, or this is self or this is non-self. Like, wait, that's part of your body. Don't want to attack that. So the microbiome is really important for teaching the immune system how to behave and when to react in the future. So it's so fascinating because you'll hear about 
the gut microbiome in terms of strengthening your immune system, but you tend not to hear, you don't hear about the power of the skin microbiome and how they're so different, but they're all connected. And, they're all connected. And I'm, I'm curious, what are the things we can do for someone listening right now to say, all right, I'm, I'm on board. I want to not just strengthen my gut microbiome, but my skin microbiome and ultimately build immune resilience. What are the, the, must, the things we must do? You said it before, Things skin health starts in the gut, right? So so let's start with the diet and let's start with an evidence-based approach, not just like, hey, let's go on an elimination diet and cut out every food known to man. Like, let's really look at the science and see what foods we want to avoid and what foods we want to add in order to help our gut health and in turn help our skin health. So first and foremost, there's very strong evidence showing that High glycemic index foods, refined carbs and sugars are very damaging to the skin. So white bagels, chips, most cold cereals, pretzels, even fine sugars and ketchup, a lot of salad dressings. You know, anytime that we have high glycemic index foods, that leads to a cascade which increases something called insulin-like growth factor one and triggers inflammation in the skin. And even sugar, just sugars in our, in our coffee in the morning, we're having a, a frappuccino, a cappuccino, or whatever. whenever we ingest sugars and it leads to a spike in our blood sugar, that leads to a process called glycation, where the sugar actually binds to the collagen, the elastic fibers in our skin targets them for destruction. So number one, try to dial down the high glycemic index foods. Number two is you wanna to try to avoid dairy milk and skim milk in particular. So interestingly, it's the proteins in the milk that are pro-inflammatory, it's the whey and the casein. So I've treated a number of bodybuilders, athletes, who were actually supplementing with whey. They would use whey protein powder, they would have whey protein bars, and they developed intractable acne that I just couldn't get it under control, right? Even if I were, pulled out the big guns, the prescriptions. Once I discovered that they were supplementing with the whey and we switched over to plant-based protein, their acne cleared up. So even just dairy milk, but when it comes to foods to add, I love prebiotic, probiotic rich foods. Those are amazing for the skin, amazing as for the gut. And I love healthy fats. So thinking about what I'm eating for dinner tonight, I'm going to have some salmon that is wild caught and rich in omega-3s, leave the skin on for some collagen. It's got some astaxanthin, which gives it that beautiful color, which is a potent antioxidant. And then some roasted veggies, some broccoli, asparagus. Broccoli is great for vitamin C. Asparagus is a prebiotic. You know, throw some garlic and onions on there, the more prebiotic, sprinkle that with some, drizzle some extra virgin olive oil, another source of omega-3 is great for the skin. And then have a little dark chocolate afterwards for some flavonoids. Antioxidants are wonderful for the skin. So you mentioned the whey protein, and I'm curious, you mentioned plant-based protein. What are your favorite plant-based proteins for people who take protein powder? Plant-based proteins, there are a lot of them out there. What do you recommend to your patients? Yeah, so usually a blend. So you know, whether it's quinoa, flax, Hemp. There's a lot of different sources of plant-based proteins, but diversity, when it comes to any food, any kind of diet, diversity is so important. 
because we know when we study these these Catavan Islanders and these you know, these people in these remote you know hunter gatherer societies, their gut microbiome is so beautiful. It's like a beautiful diverse rainforest because they're eating such a diverse diet. And Americans, we fall into the habit of just eating the same thing every day, right? So really, that diversity is so important. Which, which are your favorite? I'm a collagen person, so I love our grass-fed collagen protein. And I, I love and I, collagen, too, and I love your collagen. I love your thank, collagen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. But I, I am curious about plant-based because you hear quinoa, you hear pea, you hear I've seen pumpkin. You, I've seen all these different blends. Uh, that's why I was curious if you had a point of view on plant-based protein for those who are Yeah, it's, it's good to vegetarian. get that blend of amino acids, you know, yep. the, the diversity in amino acids, and also just the diversity you know, from a, a, a diversity alone perspective. But I, it's interesting because collagen and plant-based proteins are two sources of protein. That if you're looking to supplement, those are two excellent sources of protein. But you have to be really careful about the quality control. Yeah. And I know that you guys have done your, your due diligence and made sure that the quality is there and the contaminants are not. And that is, that's so, so important. When you think about collagen and, you know, where it's coming from, there's a lot of heavy metal contaminants and a lot of other things you have to worry about. So you really have to trust the source. 100%. It's a much bigger issue than most people realize. So in terms of the microbiome, you're on the cutting edge when it comes to research. I'm curious, where do you see this conversation going in the next few years? Any specific areas in the research that are particularly exciting to you? So when it comes to the skin microbiome, we sort of think about two categories in terms of dermatology. We think about like sort of cosmetics and over-the-counter products, right? And then we also think about prescriptions. So when it comes to sort of the cosmetic industry, a multi-billion dollar industry, I think the, the hottest area of research there is going to be looking at skin-specific prebiotics, ones that really work for the skin, right? Because something that works for the gut may or may not work for the skin. And I've seen it go both ways. But when it comes to prescriptions, I think the prescriptions are going to be focusing on postbiotics, in particular, antimicrobial peptides. So we are, we're dealing with right now, the CDC, the WHO, they have come out announcing that we are about to enter a post antibiotic era, meaning our children's generation may not be able to use antibiotics. We, just because of the overuse and misuse of antibiotics, there's so much antibiotic resistance. And there's so many companies trying to develop new classes of antibiotics, and they are not effective. They are not working. And antibiotics are leading to multi-drug resistance and other issues in the body, right? So it's fascinating to me that we can actually harness the power of certain bugs, certain good bugs, certain good bacteria on the skin to produce and secrete these natural alternatives to antibiotics, they're called antimicrobial peptides. They're like little missiles. They basically like poke holes in, in the bad bugs. <laughs> so you can use the good bugs to fight the bad bugs. So you mentioned antimicrobial microbial peptides. I'm curious, what are some of your other favorite skincare ingredients of the moment? Ooh, Bakuchia, I'll say that three times fast. Is that how you pronounce it? Bakuchia, Bakuchia what? Bakuchia who? It took me, Jason, like two weeks. <laughs> Bakuchia, okay. Can you but say it again for it. everyone? It's worth it. Bakuchia, it is so worth it because you have to put that in the podcast notes underneath so everybody can look it up. But Bakuchia is a new kid on the block that is absolutely fascinating. So first of all, to understand 
the exciting components of Bakuchiol, you have to take a step back and sort of embrace retinol and what retinol is and what some of the issues are with retinol. So you're a guy, so you're super smart, Jason, but you're also a guy. I just have to see what, do you know retinol? Have you, are you familiar with it? Most- uh, well, I am surrounded by women at home and our audience. <laughs> I'm surrounded by women in our audience. So yes, I am familiar with retinol. With retinol. You're I was raised by women. My- I live with women. Our audience is women. So I'm, I'm lucky if I can get my husband to wash his face. So, so retinol is one of the powerhouses of skincare, right? It is, there's a mountain of evidence behind retinol. And it is one of those things almost every dermatologist has or is using a retinol or a retinoid. And what's so amazing about retinol is that it can help with collagen production, it can help with skin cell turnover, it can help with uh, fine lines, wrinkles, elasticity, texture, roughness, brightening, dark spots, help with acne. I mean, it's just one of those like, wow, this ingredient's amazing, but it comes, it's like the diva, Jason, of skincare products. It's really hard to use because it creates irritation if you use too much, if you use it too often, it, it can lead to dryness and stinging and burning and flaking and red blotchy patches. You can't use it. Many of them in the morning are not photostable or they're photosensitizing. They make your skin more sensitive to the sun. You can't use them if you're pregnant. You can't use them if you're nursing. It's a whole laundry list of things that up until now, it's been worth it taking the time in my office to really work with patients to try to incorporate a retinol into their routine. But now there's Bacuchiol and it has, it's fascinating. Does it have the mountain of evidence behind it that retinol does? No, not yet. But the results, the studies that are out there thus far are incredibly compelling because it, it seems to have all those same benefits as retinol, but not only is it not irritating, it actually calms inflamed skin. It helps with skin irritation. It's fine to use it in the morning as well as in, at the nighttime. It doesn't photosensitize the skin. We don't have concerns about using it during pregnancy or when you're nursing. So it just, it is such an interesting new ingredient that is very much on my radar. So we talked about ingredients and let's segue to practices. So I'm curious, is there a practice, a skincare practice, when you hear about it, you just absolutely cringe that someone's actually doing it. And on the flip side, is there something that you just wish more people were paying attention to in terms of skincare practice? So cringe-worthy skincare. Let's definitely go there. So steaming your skin, steaming your steaming your face, dry brushing. For people who are really interested in the science, I have YouTube videos, Instagram videos on these because I, I really wanted to go into the science and debunk these myths because I can't even tell you how many people are, especially now during COVID, you're at home and you're desperate for self-care. So people are trying to do what they would get in a spa environment at home and people are steaming their face. But long story short, Steaming and dry brushing are damaging your skin barrier, damaging your skin microbiome, increasing your risk for hyperpigmentation, doing lots of harm. What are What's something I wish people were doing more of? That's a great question. Honestly, massage, just a simple massage. You know, if you have a, a moisturizer that you're using at night, rather than just, just slapping it on and running out the bathroom, take a minute and massage it into your skin. Massage is amazing for boosting circulation, helping with lymphatic drainage and make, turn that moment of skincare into self-care. Breathe deeply. Maybe, maybe repeat a mantra, like just give yourself a moment to yourself 
and trigger that relaxation response. There's beautiful research out of Harvard showing that if you just focus on your breathing, you can stop emotional and psychological stress from being translated into physical inflammation. So, so rather than stressing out, you can actually impact the inflammation in your skin just by taking a few moments to breathe. So just give yourself a little massage and breathe. So in terms of the harm we're doing to our skin, there are very obvious ones, which 100% of our audience knows, like don't smoke, not good for your health, not good for your skin. Are there less obvious lifestyle habits that are bad for skin and we just aren't paying attention to? You mentioned dry brushing. Yeah, probably the biggest mistakes. Yeah, so the biggest mistakes sort of in that category, dry brushing, but basically thinking about we're over cleansing, we're over exfoliating, and we're throwing the kitchen sink at our skin. So when we think about over cleansing, so when you cleanse, it's important to cleanse your face, but you don't want to over cleanse. What do I mean? You don't want to use alkaline cleansers. So there now you can buy, you can go online, you can buy pH strips. You can test your skincare products. You can actually, you know, wet it, a lot of these natural soaps now, if you wet them and you put the pH test strip on that natural soap, it'll turn alkaline. You look at the color it turns and you compare it to the box and it'll show you that it's alkaline. Alkaline is not good for the skin. The skin doesn't do well in an alkaline environment. It really damages the barrier. So you want to try to stop using alkaline cleansers. You want to try to avoid harsh cleansers. So things that have harsh surfactants, detergent molecules, things called SLS, sodium lauryl sulfate, or SLES. Those are very damaging for the skin. Stop scrubbing your skin. Anything that feels gritty, anything that you're using those exfoliating scrubs, very damaging to the skin. And throw away the buff buff, the loofah. I mean, Clarisonic went out of business partially because people are realizing that you're not supposed to brush your face. It's actually not good. You want leaky skin? That's a great way to give yourself leaky skin, right? So, so stop over cleansing, over washing, over exfoliating, and stop throwing the kitchen sink at your skin. I think we're layering on irritating ingredient after irritate. Some of these ingredients like alpha hydroxy acid, glycolic acid, I love that ingredient. It is a beautiful ingredient. Use it twice a week. Don't use it twice a day. Don't use it and then use a retinol and then use a third product and then use a fourth product and then use a fifth product. I mean, you're, you are damaging your own skin. So I'm curious, is it lifestyle in terms of nutrition, sleep? Is it we're using the wrong products? We're using bad products? Why do you think adult acne is on the rise, especially in women? What's contributing so, to that? At, that is, it's so true. Adult acne is really on the rise. We are seeing epidemic numbers of adult acne. So Adult acne is multifactorial. Diet, stress, hormones, and maskne has now entered my conversation when I'm counseling my adult acne patients. But, you know, diet, we talked about diet. We talked about avoiding whey protein. We talked about dialing down glycemic, high glycemic index foods, right? Those are key for helping with acne. We have beautiful placebo-controlled clinical trials to show that, okay? So this isn't just me winging it. This is evidence-based, okay? But when I think about diet, stress, hormones, maskne, what do I think is the biggest contributing factor for adult acne? Stress, stress. We are experiencing more stress than ever. Even before the pandemic with multitasking and social media, we are, we're not sleeping well. We talked about how that's contributing to our stress levels. You know, uh, the pandemic has just brought on a whole other level of stress. And when it comes to the skin, you have to think about other stressors. So things like pollution, 
things like UV rays, the skin sees those things as stress. And the, our skin has certain abilities to cope with that stress. Our, we have certain cellular antioxidants and antioxidant vitamins, but in people with acne, studies show they have lower levels of those cellular antioxidants. They have lower levels of those antioxidant vitamins. So, so people who are prone to acne, they seem to have overall burden, this heavier burden of oxidative stress. And there's fascinating new studies showing how oxidative stress, reactive oxygen species, and free radicals is actually the match that lights the whole inflammatory cascade in acne. Wow. So can you talk about the concept of sensitizing your skin also and why that's on the rise? Yes. So sensitive skin is also on the rise. We're so we're, it's a trend, right? We're seeing all yeah. of these skin conditions are on the rise. It's, and it's clearly something that is related to the gut brain skin connection. And clearly we're not addressing these things the way we should be. So sensitive skin, why is sensitive skin on the rise? So sensitive skin and sensitized skin. What is that? First of all, let's define it. So when people say that they have sensitive skin, what they mean is, you know, they'll be using say a serum or a moisturizer day after day, no problem. And then one day they put it on and when they put it on, their skin starts to sting. It starts to burn and they even can see some red blotches on the skin. Sometimes we even get, it almost feels like sandpaper. Like you rub again. It, a lot of people confuse sensitive skin for acne because they get these tiny little red bumps on the skin. Those are all manifestation of sensitive skin. When we survey people and say, do you have sensitive skin? Over 60% of Americans now say that they have sensitive skin. Wow. So, and sensitive skin is very unpredictable, right? It's like some days you have it, some days you don't. You could use the same product on a Monday that you use on a Thursday and have this terrible reaction to it on Thursday and tolerate it perfectly fine on Monday. So a lot of patients come to me and am I allergic? Did I develop an allergy? Like what's going on? And it's sensitive skin. So, so yes, there are conditions where people are more prone to sensitive skin from a genetic standpoint, things like eczema rosacea. But why are we seeing the rates of sensitive skin rise so dramatically? It's because of things we're doing to our own skin. So we talked about over cleansing. We talked about overwashing, overexfoliating is another biggie, right? So we're just exfoliating too much, too frequently and the wrong way. So stop using the scrubs, stop using the face brushes. If you're going to exfoliate, use glycolic acid, use lactic acid, use an, use an alpha hydroxy acid and use it two times a week. That's it. Build in nights for recovery. So I, I like to say, push your skin and then let your skin recover. It's the same way, like you go to the gym, you say you go all out with you know, an upper body workout. You're lifting heavy weights, you're like creating micro tears in those muscles, right? The next morning, you're not gonna wake up and do that same thing again, right? <laughs> like you're gonna, you're, gonna take, you're gonna take that muscle group out of the picture the next day. Maybe you'll do cardio, maybe you'll do a leg workout. Like you're building in recovery days because intuitively we know that if you want to get your muscles and your body to be stronger, you have to alternate between periods of intense activity and recovery. And the same thing holds true for the skin and the barrier and the microbiome, they need days to recover. So yes, please push your skin. You wanna use a retinol, go for it. You wanna use an alpha hydroxy acid, like glycolic acid, go for it. But give yourself two nights off. Give yourself nights when you're just using nourishing, wonderful, 
hydrating ingredients, things like prebiotics, things like jojoba oil, things like sunflower seed oil, glycerin, hyaluronic acid, ingredients that are going to nourish aloe, that are going to nourish the skin, re repair the barrier, replenish the microbiome, give yourself days to recover. So you mentioned masks me earlier and I, I, it's a thing. <laughs> I think it's unfortunately <laughs> here to stay. I'm curious, it's what are your go-to tips for anyone experiencing mask me? If you had to generalize, what, how can we deal with mask me? Yeah. The first thing to do is wash your mask every day. Like you wouldn't wear your underwear three days in a row. Would you Jason? No, that, no. That, never a thing for me, but I, I, I agree. <laughs> Right. So, so don't wear your mask three days in a row. So if you're wearing a cloth mask, wash it, wash it red and wash it with a, a detergent that again, doesn't have those harsh detergents, those harsh sulfates, you know, dyes, fragrances, like be gentle. Think about how you're washing it. And when you're using skincare products with maskne, maskne, it's so interesting because you're wearing these masks and it is basically creating occlusion. It's creating sort of moisture-rich environment where ingredients are going to be much more ready, readily penetrating the skin. It, it's basically compromising the barrier because think about it, you're changing, you're changing the terrain on which that microbiome is living. You're going to shift the microbiome on your skin. You're going to create dysbiosis under the mask. That's going to lead to disrupted barrier. It's going to lead to leaky skin. And then what people do is they see breakouts and what do they do? They instinctively reach for things like benzoyl peroxide and lots of salicylic acid and ingredients that are going to be drying and harsh and irritating. And that further disrupts the skin barrier, which we know exacerbates acne and it's this vicious cycle. So you really wanna actually dial down on the aggressive, potentially irritating ingredients and focus more on repairing your skin barrier, that's going to help with acne. So using moisturizers and building in those recovery days, building in, we talked about the push days, the recovery days, building in more recovery days. And if you want to try to clear up the acne with a little bit of a retinol, maybe Bacuchiol, maybe Bacuchiol is better for people who have acne because it's less likely to irritate the skin and compromise the skin barrier. But, but build in those recovery days as well. So earlier you mentioned chemicals and free radicals, and I couldn't help but think of the recent expose in the New York Times around the FDA and toxic chemicals and hair smoothers. So on one hand, we don't want to say like, just don't trust the FDA, you can't trust them. But it does bring up this potentially larger issue that just because something has an FDA stamp of approval doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you. So how can we ensure that whatever products we're buying, whatever we're putting on our body, our face are, are safe and clean and not going to do harm? So the FDA, when it comes to skincare products and over-the-counter products, the regulations, Jason, are incredibly outdated. And the FDA takes a very passive role. So when it comes to drug approval, the FDA does assess the data it looks at the safety, it looks at the efficacy, and it gives it stamp of approval. But that's actually not the case when it comes to, a lot of people are shocked to realize not the case when it comes to cosmetic and skincare products. And that's actually true of other countries. So if you look at the EU, if you look at Europe, 
over 1,300 ingredients have been banned or restricted based on safety concerns that those ingredients may be hormone disruptors, concerns that those ingredients may be potential carcinogens, right? In the U.S., that number is less than 30. Wow. So you would think, I mean, that expose that you just referred to was talking about formaldehyde in keratin treatments and, and hair conditioners. Formaldehyde is a known carcinogen. It is a potent allergen. And the fact that it's still available and on the market, you know, it, it's, I feel like there's, yes, do I wish that the FDA was taking a little bit more of an active role in this space? I do. I do. And I feel like that's why we're seeing this clean beauty movement throughout the world, but particularly in the U.S., where the U.S., the consumer has to be really its own advocate. Yeah, I think it's clear that you have to have your own back. You have to educate yourself. Information is power. And uh, that's what we're all about here. Because I think our institutions have a long way to go when it comes to products in general. We're, we're way behind. You mentioned the EU. It's just like embarrassing how far we are. It is. And I think that when, as a consumer, I mean, I am, I graduated top of my class at Yale, literally number one in my class. I got a full tuition scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania for medical school. And I struggle with reading ingredient lists. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's with food, you go to the supermarket, you turn the package around, you look at the label. You know, I think that's just people do that. They're comfortable doing it and, and they're getting used to reading those labels. Skincare, it's really hard to read the label. Even if you have a strong science background, it's, I've been working very hard to educate myself to be able to read this. So it's a tremendous burden to place on the consumer. But I think the first step is to start doing it, right? To start looking at the label, you know, go to resources. So I'm on the Credo Clean Beauty Council. They have a great resource, the Credo Dirty List. You can download it, start looking at different ingredients. They won't carry products that are formulated with those particular ingredients. They talk about why they do so. You know, just start educating yourself on what ingredients are red flags for you, which ones are you comfortable using, and start demanding transparency from skincare companies. Because the first step in making an educated decision about whether you want to buy a product or not is to know what's in the product. And unfortunately, based on FDA loopholes, there are major flaws. You can, if, if a skincare product lists the word fragrance or parfum, just that one word, just that one word on the ingredient label, that can hide 20 to 100 different ingredients, including phthalates, which you know have hormone disrupting you know, problems and, and, and repercussions in the body. And you, you don't even know what's in those products, right? So, so if go to the website, sometimes it's just too long. Sometimes you can't fit it on the label. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. I, I get that the companies are doing their best. So go to the website, see if you can, it, say if they say full disclosure, these are the fragrance ingredients that we use in our products. If they don't do that, vote with your dollar. Don't buy that product and tell the, the company, send them a DM on Instagram, go on their contact me on their website and say, look guys, like transparency is key. You have to let me know what's in your product so that I can make good decisions for my health. You mentioned fragrance and, and I was just nodding because fragrances are the worst. 
and we it's, and so many men and women yeah. wear perfume or fragrant like and they're notoriously terrible so fragrances is is such a controversial and such a nuanced topic in general we know as dermatologists that fragrance is the number one cause of skin allergies and skin irritation right and you know, and natural is not always better when it comes to fragrance because synthetic fragrances, the concern is, does it have phthalates? Does it have other potentially harmful ingredients? So that's always a concern. But a lot of natural fragrances can also be harmful or detrimental, you know, to the skin. And, and the 26 EU allergens that in the EU, in Europe, they, they call out these allergens. They actually say it on the label. They're all in essential oils. They're all in natural forms of fragrance. And they can be, they can cause allergies. They can cause irritation. So fragrance is a very complicated topic. Um, and if you're somebody who's concerned about fragrance, I'm not saying that everybody has to go fragrance-free. And this fragrance has so many benefits in so many ways, right? Emotionally, it can be a form of self-care. There's aromatherapy benefits to fragrance. Some fragrances are calming and soothing and really elevate the whole experience of using a skincare product. But when you're thinking about using fragrance, you want to know what's in there, transparency, right? Find out the actual ingredients. Find out if those ingredients are irritating to the skin. Find out if those ingredients are allergens or high risk for creating allergies in the skin. And then think about the different types of products that you're using in different places. Like fragrance may be okay for a body product, but maybe not for a leave-on face product. It may be okay for a cleanser. You're putting it on, you're washing it off, no big deal. But if you're using something on your face, and you're leaving it on your face twice a day, a leave-on moisturizer that you're putting on your face twice a day, and it's loaded with lots of fragrances that are potential allergens, you know, then you have to think twice about that product. So in closing, it's November 2020, lots happening in the world, and I'm curious what concerns you, and then also what excites you? So what concerns me is that I am a little bit concerned that the general traditional medical community is not taking integrative dermatology as seriously as they need to. I am, I am used to being a pioneer. I'm used to being a trailblazer. I remember, you know, back in my training, I was taught that diet had no impact on the skin. And, and I was taught that by about giants in my field, the most re respected members of the dermatology community were the ones who were lecturing and it was in my textbooks and it was on our websites. And it said, if a patient comes to you and says that what we're eating has an effect on the skin, we debunk it as myth and we write them a prescription for an antibiotic, right? So, and I didn't believe in that. And I really spoke out against that. And I published groundbreaking articles on that topic. And now years later, I just received a, a presidential citation, an award from the president of the American Academy of Dermatology for my research in this field. And we've now revised the textbooks. We've revised the guidelines. I'm used to being at the forefront of these sort of things. But I think when it comes to thinking about the skin in terms of the gut-brain skin connection, I think that a lot of traditionally trained doctors are not as familiar with the, the actual science behind that and the strong, compelling science behind that. And they sort of sometimes will hear that and they'll hear things like leaky gut and leaky skin and, and they'll dismiss those concepts. And so what do I, I see it as a challenge more than anything 
I think that I, I am up for the challenge. And I, I do hope that conversations like this one, where I, your listeners are incredibly savvy people, incredibly smart people, they want the science, they want the evidence. And I think that if we start having these conversations, I think that will be really helpful in allowing people to really get to the root of the skin issues and, and really think about the skin in a very holistic way. I know you asked something else, totally blanking. I like answered part, totally no, ignore I, the other. I, I, I asked about what concerns you and excites you. So you, you sort of hit both. Why, thank you. See, multitasker that I am. <laughs> you, I, I, I love it. Well, Dr. Whitney Bow, thank you so much for all the incredible work you do. We are in an exciting time. The gut, brain, skin access, that's what it's all about. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to many more conversations with you online or offline. Thank you, Whitney.